Greetings and welcome to the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast series. Podcast episodes are available on VHHA.com and on popular podcast hosting apps, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, and many others. Episodes of the podcast also air each Saturday at noon and Sunday at 10 a.m. on 100.5 FM, 92.7 FM, and 820 a.m. across Central Virginia. Please send any questions, comments, or feedback to PCFpodcast at VHHA.com. Again, that's PCFpodcast at VHHA.com. And today we're excited to be joined by Kurt Hooks, PhD, the CEO of Virginia Beach Psychiatric Center and the chair of the VHHA Behavioral Health Committee for a conversation about behavioral health care in the Commonwealth, particularly at a moment in time when demand for mental health and substance abuse services is rising and conversations about community needs are increasingly more common. And with that, welcome to the program, Dr. Hooks. Thank you so much, Julian. It's really a pleasure to be able to speak with you today. Well, we appreciate you making the time. So let's start by discussing Virginia Beach Psychiatric Center, which is part of Universal Health Services, a multi-state health system that includes acute care hospitals, behavioral health inpatient facilities, and outpatient facilities. Behavioral Health Psychiatric Center has a multidisciplinary staff of psychiatrists, nurses, clinical social workers, drug and alcohol counselors who provide adult mental health and substance abuse services. With that brief background, if you would just tell us a little bit more about the facility, uh, your typical patient census, and any other key information that would help people have a sense of, of what Virginia Beach Psychiatric Center is uh, and the kinds of patients it serves. Yeah, sure. So let's start back. The history of Virginia Beach Psychiatric Center, it's been a little over 40 years here in the community, Southampton Roads, and it's the largest acute care psychiatric facility freestanding of its type in the region for adults in particular. And currently we serve a consumer base uh, really throughout the entire catchment area of the of Hampton Roads, but even sometimes as needed, will also be accessible to individuals with urgent crisis mental health needs from other districts, especially in, in regards to where the access issues currently stand in the Commonwealth. We've seen that need and request grow, but our commitment is to really be forward-facing in the community in regards to access to care. We offer 24-7 free assessments to individuals who just think they might need to come and talk to somebody. It might be an urgent crisis. That could be for someone who has an addiction issue, for an individual who is uh, having some depression, any type of mood disorder, someone who may have a more severe type of mental illness. We often refer to as a serious mental illness and that can be ranging from um, severe bipolar disorder, uh, psychotic disorders. And most often when we encounter these individuals, they are at sort of an escalated level of crisis. And they can be referred in either through the community services boards here in Virginia, uh, voluntarily or involuntarily, through community-based providers and outpatient providers, the whole continuum of care, through medical offices that aren't behavioral health related whatsoever. From really kind of any domain of, of society, we want to be and intend to be and have been a central access point for behavioral health services in Hampton Roads here and in particular in Virginia Beach. We have 100 beds currently that we're licensed for. And so we have five different units with our size, we're able to kind of separate our programming out to be more specified. Sometimes the presentation of individuals will be more amenable and appropriate for cohorting these consumers in, in, in different treatment settings um, so that we can design the programming that's going to be most relevant for them and also is going to make them feel more comfortable and feel that they're going to get the best value in gaining some 
recovery and traction in the recovery and uh, ideally discharging them with a good plan. And that's been more challenging, of course, amidst the pandemic in particular with the resource issues that, that we've had. But acute care primarily, but we do have a couple of partial hospitalization programs as well for mental health and for addiction services. And on the acute side, we also have addiction detox services too. Do you wish you could focus on practicing medicine without all the distractions? Covaris is here to help. As a leader in medical professional liability insurance with more than 45 years experience, Covaris provides insurance protection with data-driven predictive modeling to help you mitigate the risk of claims. By combining insurance protection with risk analytics services, you can reduce distractions and focus on improving clinical, operational, and financial outcomes. Covaris is reinventing what you should expect from your medical professional liability provider. Find out all Covaris can offer you at Covaris.com. That's C-O-V-E-R-Y-S.com. Insurance products issued by Medical Professional Mutual Insurance Company and its insurance subsidiaries, Boston, Massachusetts. And I mentioned the growing demand for behavioral health services. Recent public opinion survey and polling work done by VHHA shows that 13% of Virginia adults, which works out to about 700,000 people, said they or a close family member had a mental health or substance use challenge that arose during the COVID-19 pandemic when many people experienced anxiety, isolation, depression, and other mental challenges. And now there's a new VCU poll that found that 42% of adults in Virginia say the pandemic has had a negative impact on their mental health. As you hear those numbers, and based on what you're seeing firsthand, I wonder what observations you can share about trends in demand for mental health treatment services overall and the impact that the pandemic may be having on that demand. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it's very much aligned that the data that you shared with what we've experienced initially at the beginning of the pandemic with the fear, the changes in terms of what was open, what wasn't open, individuals kind of more isolating in their homes we weren't really getting as surprisingly as much what we would call kind of downstream activity into referrals into our facility or people coming out to want to seek care. People probably were in a bit of shock, understandably. And as the pandemic persisted, of course, much longer than anyone had anticipated, we began to see more and more demand for need for services. And that manifested for us in, in many different ways, this facility in particular, on the voluntary side, we saw our walk-ins increase. We saw referrals from different parts of the community, different providers. That increased as well. And in particular, we saw an increase in the demand for addiction services. And we understand that, of course, the ABC stores, they've had record numbers of sales uh, you know, this past year and, and throughout the pandemic. The opioid epidemic has just been mushrooming in terms of the severity of that and the outcomes associated with it and other types of substances even increasing all the way across the board. And it's understandable, you know, individuals are already stressed in their daily lives. And the longer that something like this persists, we think of a crisis as, you know, kind of a short-term situation. But when you have such a sustained level of uncertainty for so long that is so disruptive at this level, individuals are going to they're going to cope in any way they might find helpful. And sometimes that can be, over time, counterproductive or make things worse. And that coupled along with the access to services that are less restrictive, say, than what we do here at our facility in particular. And not everyone that comes in is admitted, obviously. We refer quite a bit out to uh, other providers in the community. But 
those services that are less restrictive, outpatient services, a lot of that moved to telehealth, which was actually very helpful from an accessibility level. But the more kind of traditional-based outpatient services, it was difficult on, on a couple of levels for individuals to, uh, to seek and access care, uh, really with prescribers in particular, psychiatrists and other similar prescribers. There was increased scarcity in workforce, and just the direct care workforce has been very, very challenging as well. And so access to appointments has been a bit of a challenge. And, and so you can see how someone who maybe has not had previous manifestation or severe previous manifestation of a serious mental health problem, how that could evolve during the course of the pandemic. And someone with a history thereof, either with mental health or addiction problems or combination of both, how that could be exacerbated with the lack of resources that we're used to seeing and also housing and other, and other determinants that factor in as well that all kind of have combined into this place that we've arrived at now where there's continued scarcity of access along with an increase in demand. And it's, it's very worrisome, to be quite honest, and we're hopeful that there's going to be some meaningful continued reform that will enhance access and, and quality of care and, and really throughout the whole continuum and even the social determinants as well. Well, you mentioned partial hospitalization programs a few moments ago. You just mentioned reform, and that's a great segue to the next question, which is about one of the pressing issues in Virginia right now are some of the capacity challenges that the state-run psychiatric hospitals. Uh, this summer, uh, the Virginia Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services temporarily halted admissions at five of the state-run psychiatric hospitals because of staffing challenges and, and attendant capacity issues. In this conversation, which is one that's been ongoing for many years, and for those who've, who follow this, mental health reform efforts on the policy front have been happening for many, many years in Virginia. When we talk about the overall demand for psychiatric care, we know that private hospitals in Virginia continue to handle, you mentioned people who come in voluntarily, continue to handle the vast majority of voluntary admissions for psychiatric care, handle the majority of involuntary admissions, in other words, folks who are who are committed under a temporary detention order, also handle the majority of substance use disorder cases. And so I just wonder, as we continue to talk about this and, and look for policy solutions, what do you see? What 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 are some of the, the potential options? Because I know the hospital community has offered things like partial hospitalization or intensive outpatient, sure. uh, have offered a number of proposals to try to divert patients from, say, going from an emergency department setting to ending up in a state psychiatric hospital. So as you look at this topic, you know, what do you see and what are some opportunities? That's a great question. I uh, just first kind of want to underscore just for the, the listeners that this is at a crisis level at this point. Uh, in fact, earlier today, we had a Region 5 Behavioral Health Stakeholders meeting, which was a, a great actually venue and ex example of how there is the opportunity for cross-systems collaboration among public and private providers. And I see that as uh, an opportunity to optimize the resources that currently are there and, and available in the communities versus what we have more typically seen, at, at least you know, my experience. And, and I started as a clinician myself 21 years ago here in Hampton Roads. And so I've, I've seen and experienced iterations of this as, um, as a clinician, as a provider, an advocate, um, now as an operator of a large facility. The, the, the silos, you know, we have so many different, it's fragments of the system of 
behavioral health care here in Virginia. We're all working towards the same goal. We want the same outcome for the individuals. This is about the individuals that need help. And so the accessibility of that, any solution or reform should address really the entire continuum of provider base and care. You mentioned partial hospitalization. There's intensive outpatient programs, supportive housing. I mean, we could go on and on about the opportunities that could become more accessible or could be built further out that could really facilitate someone who may be headed towards crisis to maybe not get to that point, someone who has recovered from a crisis episode, have a better opportunity to maintain a good quality of life um, in a humane way. And I can tell you right now what's happening across at least our region with many, many consumers and individuals in crisis held up for very long periods of time in emergency departments, uh, for example, um, just waiting on just some type of help. Uh, Many times under orders, uh, involuntary orders, ties up a lot of resources in a lot of different ways across multiple stakeholder groups. And so back to the, I think the larger point is any solution and reform really has to be inclusive of both the public and private providers and also will be thoughtful and intentional and informed by all of the stakeholders, including the, the consumers and care recipients as well, in terms of, okay, what what are these needs? How are we working together? How are we not working together? How can we optimize what we currently have better? What do we need to build more? And I think that part of that too is that the reimbursement for behavioral health services has been a little bit lagging, uh, just in terms of, of my experience in, in comparison to you know, other sectors of healthcare. And we've seen behavioral health more and more kind of siloed uh, away. And, and then that's, we've seen some positive changes in that regard. And, and I, I want to commend the individuals, the stakeholders and legislators and every, everyone who's involved in creating a groundswell of, of awareness around this and moving the needle on this in a substantial way. But to really, I think, bring the resources we need to bear in terms of treatment access, quality care, and really to be proactive, we're going to have to invest in this in a very holistic way. Part of that, I think, is looking at the reimbursement structure too. If you want to incentivize individuals to come into the workforce, which is a just a massive struggle, and we've seen this with the state hospitals, and it's the same for the private providers as well. Behavioral health care is a difficult, it's challenging, and incredibly rewarding work, both at the same time. And uh, there's so much that is involved in that. And uh, for individuals that don't have an experience either as, as a care recipient in that environment or a provider, uh, whether it be inpatient or in any other setting, you know, it's, it's very energy-consuming but incredibly rewarding. And it takes a lot for a care provider even to get to a place of competency or licensure to be able to provide care in, in a manner that is humane and, and best practice oriented and evidence-based. And But the amount of time and training and uh, investment of that person, if, if they were to go into another sector of healthcare with that same type of investment, you know, they, they would do better financially. And, and that's not typically why people come into this field to begin with. It's because they have a real care and and desire and passion for that, and that's what we want. But for a really sustainable, ecological, 
holistic and really outcome-based type of reform. We, it really requires investment across all all the domains, and and including again something that addresses the social determinants. You know, we, we think a lot about housing and, and transportation in particular. Um, you know, the, these are basic needs that that many individuals, especially with serious mental health issues, just don't have access to. And and you can imagine having that type of a problem to contend with, the serious mental health problem, and then just also being homeless and not having access to get from point A to point B, not having a good support system around you. And there's some great programs. I think, you know, what is laid out with Step VA and and many, many other things that are currently in implementation, they're very thoughtful and intentional. But again, all of it needs to be resourced and, and all the systems, care providers, the social determinant pieces, all these elements need to be effectively interfacing and working together to create sustainable solutions. No, it's a great point, and I appreciate that perspective. And as you mentioned, I mean, you need comprehensive solutions here that involve stakeholders across the continuum of care, the CSBs, the private hospital community, DBHDS, patients, families, advocates, law enforcement is another partner mm-hmm. here, as, as you well know. Indeed. So it's a it's a great point. The point about uh, reimbursements, I know, is, is a critical one and something that is an ongoing discussion point and, and challenge, but not just for the care, but also for uh, some of the staffing considerations, as you sure. well know. If you've got a particularly challenging patient, the staffing ratio on that patient may need to be more individualized uh, than with some other patients. And that obviously, uh, there are investment of resources that are associated sure. with that. So I uh, really appreciate that perspective and, and great points there. And now that we have uh, tackled the serious stuff, I do have a few other questions for you to give our listeners a bit of a sure. sense of who you are beyond the work you do. The first, and this is an entirely imaginary premise, but in the hypothetical scenario that you could anticipate your final day on earth, what would your last meal be? I'd have to go with probably what most people would say is their de facto answer, pizza, and then maybe some ice cream for dessert. I I think that could, I could go out with that and and feel pretty good about that. A lot of dairy mixed in there. What, uh, (laughs) what, what toppings on the pizza? Mm, I'm going to go old fashioned pepperoni not too picky, but that's the bread and butter right there. And it's interesting you bring up the dairy because I, I have a history of lactose. I have Crohn's disease, by the way. So lactose has never been much of a friend to me, but um, but I think it would be worth it for a last yeah, meal. If, and if, sure. it's, if, it's your la- <laughs> if it's your last day. I mean, exactly. You know. Exactly. Uh, the next question, sir, is what's one post-COVID thing you're most looking forward to being able to do? Travel, and I think probably many folks have, would say the same. You know, it's it's been difficult to travel, and to do so also with not having that overarching or at least underlying kind of fear, right? That things could change at any moment. Now mm-hmm. we're seeing this with the Delta variant again, and in fact, I have a trip planned. It'll be my first vacation in four or five years, and and now I'm wondering if it if it's going to happen. You know, so traveling most certainly would be most welcome uh, some time and space away. We all need those self-care opportunities, and that kind of is at the top of the list for me right now. All right. Well, fingers crossed that things start to trend back in the better direction in terms of case counts and hospitalizations, and you can get that trip in. And then, I appreciate that. Yes, sir. And then finally, if you were stranded on a deserted island, what one book one album and one movie would you take with you to keep yourself occupied? We will spot you a copy of the religious text of your choice. And also, special special bonus for you, since I know that you're a fitness guy, 
You can also take your favorite piece of gym equipment. So, what are your three entertainment survival kit picks and your piece of gym equipment? Mm, so, I'm a fan of, of the classics. More so, I've been reading one of the great, in my opinion, American novelists, Cormac McCarthy. Mm-hmm. And I just think that he just has some just really unique writing style. And it's it's a little bit dark, I have to admit. I don't know if it's the best for uh, continuous consumption, but just because I've been kind of, uh, when I've had a moment for leisure reading, have have been delving into some of his work again. And then in terms of a movie, trying to think of a top five list, but one that just kind of immediately came to my mind is the Shawshank Redemption. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just think there's just just profound story of, of hope and really a lot of aspects of humanity. I hope I can make it across the border. I hope to see my friend and shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams. I hope. For someone stranded on an island, I could see how uh, that type of uh, hope and, and what's communicated and conveyed with the relationships and well, quite frankly, kind of redemption. You know, mm-hmm. I can imagine being on an island thinking about uh, maybe some regrets or some things we, we you know, we would have done differently. And then we all have those thoughts anyway. But I could see that as, as something that would be encouraging to be able to see, even though it's a, <laughs> it's a very long movie. Album, from start to finish, I'd have to say, and I'll date myself a little bit here on this one, but I'm not as much of a U2 fan as, as I used to be. But mm-hmm. I, I do... Love the Joshua Tree. I think it's it's a great album. Really, there's there doesn't feel like there's a weak track from start to finish there on that one. I could think of a million more, but that one in particular, I I could probably listen to that one quite a few times without myself wanting to you know, kind of just uh, be a little bit oversaturated quickly, I mm-hmm. would say. Yeah. And then do you want to take a piece of gym equipment with you? Piece of gym equipment. Here we go. All right. So thinking of what would be the most versatile. So I'm, I kind of, I really like barbell work. So I'm, I'm going to expand on this a little bit if you'll allow me to. And I would say a power rack with a barbell and and a few plates, and I could get pretty much anything done that I needed to get done, and calms my nervous system down uh, right away. That's that's kind of my go-to is um, lifting and kind of lifting heavy if I can. It's kind of a, a meditative outlet for me in, in in some ways. And so, forgive me for maybe maybe that might be more than one piece of equipment, but it's kind of all in, in one setup, I guess you could say. So, that would be what I would prefer. We're not here to judge choices. We're just here, we're just here to ask what they are. So cheat away or, or fudge away, yeah, if you will. I appreciate that. And with that, that is going to bring us to the close of another episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to Apple Podcast and leave us a five-star review and subscribe so that you know when new episodes are available. We want to once again thank our guest, Dr. Kurt Hooks, the CEO of Virginia Beach Psychiatric Center, for being with us today. So thank you, sir. Julian, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity.